Welcome to podcast number 34 for Thanks for Your Service. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. If you were to travel to Half Moon Bay in Port Phillip Bay in Victoria and gaze offshore, you are still able to see a piece of colonial history of Australia. Sitting in just three metres of water and some 200 metres from the shore is the wreck of Her Majesty's Victorian ship Cerberus. Joining us on the line from Victoria is John Rogers, President of the Friends of the Cerberus Incorporated. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Now, Her Majesty's Victorian ship Cerberus, who is she? Well, it was um, a Monitor-class vessel. Uh, Monitor is a warship that's got a very low deck, the idea being it's a very small target. So it was Britain's um, answer to the USS Monitor, which was launched in 1862 and Cerberus was launched in 1868 um, for the Government of Victoria. Now, she was built in the UK, I think in about 1867. What do we know about her journey to Australia? Uh, Well, the problem with Cerberus is that she was designed specifically for Port Phillip, which is a very shallow bay. So to enable her to be able to go anywhere within the bay, she didn't have a keel. Uh, So any um, attacking ships would have to stick to the channels where Cerberus could go anywhere to attack them, which is fine if you're in a shallow bay. It's not too rough, but if you're crossing an ocean, not having a keel's a problem. So uh, it was a rough journey out. Also, because it was built for a small colonial navy, um, it was steam-powered. So it's the first British warship powered purely by steam. Uh, and that's fine because it was never going to be far from home. It was just prowling around Port Phillip. Uh, and because it's a small colony, small navy, couldn't have run a man of war with sails anyway, just didn't have the manpower. So it was coal-powered. Um, and that's, again, a problem when you're coming out from Britain. There's not a lot of coaling stations around then, and service couldn't carry much coal. So they put up some temporary masts with sails on them, and she went pretty slow with the sails, but she went, and therefore they could conserve the coal for when they had to use it. And I, and I also read that the, the, her ship's company nearly mutinied on several occasions on the trip from England to Australia. Do we know why? Yeah, well, she left in um, on November the 7th, so, you know, 150 years ago. I think it's next Saturday. Uh, prior to her leaving there was a ship called HMS Captain, which was a disaster. Uh, I won't go into the whole story about it, but it, it looked like a similar ship to Cerberus, but it covered, carried full sails, full masts and sails, top-heavy, and during one of its trials, it just fell over and sank to the bottom with most of the crew, I think. I don't know. Only a few people survived. Um, the designer went down with the ship as well. So this was in the news when they were recruiting for Cerberus and oh, it's the same sort of ship, it's going to sink, you know. So they had trouble getting crew and when it got to Malta, it had been a bit rough and so a few of them decided, well, we've had enough of this. So they got most of them back but then a few decided to stay in jail rather than go on Cerberus. 
Now, in April 1871, the ship arrived uh, in Melbourne and she was designated the flagship of the then the Victorian Naval Forces. Can you give us sort of an insight of Victorian Navy pre-Federation? Well, she actually wasn't um, designated as the flagship. Um, she was later in the 18, 1897, I think it was. The problem was Cerberus was, when it was going, it had um, a whole lot of engines on board, obviously, to drive the ship, to raise the anchor, to run the ventilation. Um, Cerberus didn't have portholes. It was low to the water, heavily armoured. Uh, portholes are obviously a weakness. And so it relied on the ventilation fans running, blowing air around the ship. Well, if you're anchored or moored in port, you're not going to have the ventilation fans running. Mm. So it was... And you can't see inside because, again, there's no portholes. So the officers preferred to live on a, 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 a ship with light coming in. So we had a um, well, what's the biggest British warship at one stage, the HMVS Nelson. So that came out prior to Cerberus, and the officers decided that should be the flagship and they would live on board and have fresh air and light coming through windows. So although it was an obsolete ship, it's an 1814 vessel, uh, Nelson, it was nicer to live in. So if you're moored in the bay, the flagship was Nelson, so the officers could live on board. Uh, but when it came to the crunch, Cerberus was really the battleship, the one that was one well, not, not a battleship, it was the main warship of the, the fleet. Uh, you asked about the rest of the navy but Victoria had the largest navy in of, of the, all the colonies by far New South Wales um, didn't need a navy because the Royal Navy was stationed there you know the Australian station mm. um, the Royal Navy on the Australian station was based up in Sydney so they had some nice torpedo boats they built themselves and a, um, a frigate for training purposes but we started off with a um, a bark, so Harry Smith, which didn't actually go anywhere, it was just moored, but it was a, a ship with guns on it. And then we um, commissioned, or we we commissioned a ship called Victoria to be built, and it was actually involved in an overseas campaign in New Zealand. Then we got Nelson, um, that was used for a range of purposes, but it was a commissioned warship a couple of stages. Then Cerberus, and that was by far the most powerful ship in Australia. It was said it could take on the whole Royal Navy based up in Sydney um, and trounce them because it was a, a cutting-edge technology ship, massive guns. Uh, after Cerberus, you get in the 1880s, you get torpedo boats. We had um, two second-class torpedo boats, um, two first-class torpedo boats. We had two third-class gunboats. So it's, and we had a whole range of um, government and um, harbour trust vessels that at 24 hours notice could be set up as torpedo boats or gunboats. So if, if the Russians steamed up the bay in the 1880s, we had 16 ships we could put out there, either full-time warships or converted warships. John, you, you mentioned the Russians. I mean, why did Victoria need a navy? Were they there our primary threat at that stage? Well, there'd been a war with Russia, of course, in the Crimean War in the uh, 1850s. So you're looking 10 years later, 
there were actually Russian plans in the event of war to raid Sydney, Melbourne, Newcastle, and then head off to the neutral, well, then neutral ports on the US of A. Um, what's more surprising is there was no war after the Crimean War between Britain and Russia because they were at loggerheads. There were a couple of times when they almost came to war. I remember one stage they transferred, I think it was 30,000 troops from India off to the Mediterranean ready for a war in the 18, late 1870s and there was another scare in the 1880s. So I, I, I suspect the war wasn't, wasn't avoided simply because Cerberus was sitting down in Port Phillip mm. But you'd be irresponsible not to have a, a decent deterrence. And it was understood that if something happened down here, and ships, various ships came in, there was a Confederate warship came in, uh, CSS Shenandoah and there were various Russian ships came in, had they not been friendly, we couldn't have done anything. And by the time the British fleet got down here from Sydney, they'd have done their damage and gone. So Victoria could afford it and put together a quite a decent navy. Now, Australia, of course, became a federation in 1901. What became of the Cerberus post-federation? Well, it simply changed from HMVS, as in Her Majesty's Victorian ship, to HMAS Cerberus with the federation uh, and continued to serve right up to about 1906. The guns were... No, I think, uh, guns were um, condemned, I think, at that point. And the boilers were condemned around a similar time. So in 1809, sorry, 1909, it was time to retire Cerberus. So they, uh, one last trip was undertaken down to the heads, down to Queenscliff, but there were no boilers or the boilers weren't safe enough. So they towed her down there for the last Easter manoeuvres because every Easter there'd be manoeuvres down at the heads where they'd be attacking the forts or attacking a... Uh, an invading force, you know, of half the Navy would be the bad guys and half would be the good guys. So in 1909, they towed Cerberus down there one more time with the captain who delivered her in 1870-71 and then towed her back um, where she was eventually scrapped. And what, what's the status of Cerberus today? I mean, the ship still exists, so give us a bit of an overview of, of, of where she is today. Well, she was scuttled down at Half Moon Bay um, to extend the existing breakwater down there. Um, and she sat there, well, she sat there since 1926 when she was scuttled. Kids used to go out there all, I think kids still go out there all the time, but there used to be a lot of uh, semi-official functions out there, Boy Scouts and picnics and birthday parties and whatever. Uh, it's, it's collapsed in... 1993, December 27. Uh, it's actually quite dangerous, so it's not a good idea to go out there now. We we go out occasionally with permits so that we can measure things and whatever. Uh, we have a Friends of the Cerberus obtained a grant from the federal government, half a million dollars, uh, and we would like to pump polyurethane under the turrets to stop them collapsing. Yeah. But um, for unknown reasons to us and the National Trust, who are on the same page as us, the federal government decided it would be a good idea to fill it with concrete, 4,000 tonnes. Payside were offered our grant if they filled it with concrete. 
they got a permit from Heritage Victoria and as last we heard they were still planning to pump 238 concrete trucks of concrete into um, something that's on the National Heritage List. Naturally we oppose this and the National Trust oppose it and we're still trying to convince them of the error of their ways. Did the ship ever fire a shot in anger? No, it never did. It's interesting, when uh, the second damaged gun was taken off, just because it didn't wear out, was taken off in 1898 and replaced, they said that the second damaged gun, which would have been the same as the other ones on the ship, had been fired 208 times at that stage. So that's over 800 times guns were fired. And, of course, they kept being fired for the next decade, roughly. So it certainly fired a lot of shots, but none in anger, which is always a good thing. And it's interesting, if you look at the... When they did firing practice, probably the biggest problem was they'd they'd blow away the target on the second or first or third shot very early on. (laughs) (laughs) They were very accurate guns. They could fire four and a half kilometres... They fired a 183-kilogram shell or shot, um, which could go through a um, 300 mil of armour at about a kilometre. So it was a very tough ship. And it's interesting, they'd often fire at targets, you know, moored in the bay or at cliffs. And they're firing at one of the cliffs down down near Sorrento, and they must have overshot because one of the shells was found at Cheviot Beach mm. <laughs> in, 18, in 1985. And, of course, Cheviot That's, Beach is famous uh, where Harold Holt went missing. I think. Yeah, yeah. And so the shell's been fired. It's been fired a bit high. It's gone right over the peninsula and just landed in at Cheviot Beach and just sat there. So an early shell, so it would have been fired there in the 1870s, and it sat there until, you know, 18, 1985 when some kid found it. Goodness. Now, we spoke about the Friends of Cerberus Inc. Can you tell us more about um, about it? Yeah, well, we formed <laughs> 2002 to support Bayside and Heritage Victoria and the National Trust. We all had the same goal at that time, which was to save the Cerberus and jack it up um, to pre pre collapsed um, profile and we were all on the same page about 2012 and then Bayside seems to well went a different direction of trying to fill it with sand or fill it with concrete whatever Um, we have been trying the whole time to preserve service for future generations we managed to get the guns taken off with a state government grant um, I think it was 2005 so that reduced the weight on the ship because the turrets are going to collapse at some point uh, if you take the guns out of the turrets they're 18 tonnes each four guns um, that delays the collapse and if we can pump polyurethane under the turrets then they won't collapse that's the best we can do with the money we've got mm. um, our membership is some of which have been with us that entire time join each year as various ranks so they join as a seaman or as a a cook and each rank has a different price 
cost. So if you're a commander, you pay $100 a year. If you're a boy, you pay nothing. You still get the newsletters, etc. Um, so uh, we have quite a few members who just every year join. In fact, our most popular rank is the dearest one of $100 mm. just because they all have, you know, they get a certificate, facsimile of a Victorian Navy certificate, um, giving their rank, etc. Now, you, you also spoke about the guns being taken off. Is there any physical evidence apart from the ship itself in museums or anything like that within Victoria? Ah, yes. We've got a display at Seaworks. We have four... We've got five shells, or four shells and a shot from Cerberus. Four of them are there. Uh, we have various relics from Cerberus. Uh, also have other ships. We've got the bell from the gunboat Albert. We've got the wheel from Nelson. And also down at HMAS, HMAS Cerberus, the naval base... Uh, Western Port, they've got a fantastic museum down there. They've got the wheel from Cerberus, the bell from Cerberus, uh, one of the guns from the gunboats. They've got a gun from Cerberus down there, one, the one that went up to Ballarat, the, the second damage gun that went to Ballarat in the 1800s and back down or down to Cerberus. Mm. They've got the anchor down there as well. It's, it's worth going to the HMAS Cerberus Museum, and I would say when it's open, it's worth going to Seaworks to see our display. Now, where can people go to find out more about the service? You have a website, for example. Yeah, cerberus.com.au, and there's thousands of pages there. We have a database on all the men we know that served in the Victorian Naval Forces, 3,000 in the database. Worth mentioning, the Victorian Naval Forces is the correct name it had two divisions, the permanent men, which is the Victorian Navy, and the part-timers, the militia, who were the Victorian Naval Brigade or the Victorian Naval Reserve, uh, depending on when, and they would uh, be paid. Uh, they'd exercise so many hours a week and Easter holidays. Or if you're in the Harbour Trust, they give you three weeks' paid leave to exercise on board the ships. Um, at the most, at its uh, extreme size, it numbered 650 men, which is a very small navy, but enough to man 16 vessels. A fascinating piece of Australian military history. John, thank you so much for your time today. That's the podcast for today. You can find the relevant links to this podcast on our Facebook page. We're keen to hear your feedback. If you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcasting apps, please leave a review. You can also support us via Patreon. Your gracious support helps us with costs such as hosting and production of the podcast. Even as little as $1 can help. The link is www.patreon.com forward slash thanks for your service. Thanks for listening.